Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. The old world is dying. The new world struggles to be born. Now is the time of monsters. Uh, with those words, I welcome you to the Time of Monsters podcast, sponsored by The Nation magazine. Uh, first, a word of apology. We weren't on last week. I had a very bad case of strep throat, which I've recovered from, I hope, and uh, we'll be able to uh, do the podcast without a grating voice. Again, I hope. So th- this week, you know, to resume the podcast, you know, this is an election year, and Things are not looking as great as one would hope they, that they would be. There are a lot of polls showing, you know, either Trump is very close to Joe Biden or is ahead of Joe Biden. Now, you know, it's early polls. The electorate hasn't quite settled in yet. Uh, but I mean, one other aspect that makes it disturbing is because of the nature of the Electoral College and Trump's geographical advantage, you know, like Biden needs to win this thing by 3% or more. Uh, for, for And that's not where we're at right now. So the question I think should be like, you know, like for anyone who sees Donald Trump as a, you know, threat to America and to the world, what, what can be done to stop this? How can Joe Biden be reelected? And, you know, like one of the advantages that the Democrats have had over the last two years has been the so-called Dobbs effect. The fact that the end of Roe v. Wade by the Supreme Court has really energized abortion as an issue, especially energized the pro-choice side. And that has had like a, a remarkable effect in like many elections going back to the past two years where Democrats have been pretty consistently overperforming where they usually are in the electorate. And so one would think that this, this is going to be a major issue. And the, the, the Democratic Party has indicated that this is something that they are going to run on. But, 
there are ways in which, you know, there's the message and there's a messenger. And one has to ask, you know, is Joe Biden going to be the most effective messenger on this issue? And to this point, you know, like frequent guest of the program, Mara Donegan has written a great column in The Guardian, which is uh, one of the homes for her prose, you know, like outlining uh, some of the real problems with the way the Biden White House and Biden as a candidate has approached the issue. And I, I think the points that she makes are very much like get to the heart of the matter and really clarify how what needs to be done. So first of all, once again, thanks for being on the program. Thank you so much for having me. And so let's just get into this. Like, 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 well, what's your argument with Joe Biden? I mean, he is, you know, pro-choice and Donald Trump definitely is not. <laughs> I think that there's going to be a class of people who say like, you know, why are you carping? Like, like, why can't you just be cheerleading? Yeah, you know, and I don't, I, I, I think there's a one sort of response to that argument that would go like, go fuck yourself. Nobody owes Joe Biden support. He should have to earn the pro-choice vote. And there's some there's some truth to that, but that's not quite where I'm coming from, right? I am a person who sincerely believes in the danger posed by a second Trump term and mm-hmm. understands his repeated definitive defeat as like a pretext for or, or, or a prerequisite for like our continued form of government, right? Like, so I am somebody who actually very much wants Joe Biden to win. And I am launching my critique from a place of trying to save him from himself rather than merely being angry at him. Although I would also sort of quibble with your contention that Donald Trump is anti-choice. He has certainly been anti-choice as a politician, right? Uh, Mm -hmm. He has been... um, a stern, devoted ally uh, to the anti-abortion movement and to the conservative uh, legal moment that the anti-abortion cause really launched. You know, he brags that he is responsible for the overturning of Roe v. Wade, and I think he is correct. You know, if he hadn't yeah, yeah. been in that job, he wouldn't have. You know, that abortion would be enfeebled, but technically legal nationwide, and you know, people who are experiencing life-altering denials of their dignity, bodily autonomy, safety, and health would not be in those situations, right? So like Donald Trump is definitely worse for the abortion cause, but we're Mm. also in kind of a peculiar moment with the issue of abortion in this election cycle, where it's clear that the two men who are representing the two sort of like de facto political positions have personal approaches to abortion as an issue that are opposite from their stated political and effectual political positions. Right. So like Donald Trump is a guy. Yeah. That's that's an excellent point. And I think a lot of people have thought about this, but that's exactly right. No, like, here's what I'm saying is like Donald Trump is a guy who has done horrible things for the abortion. Right. He has, he is personally responsible for denying abortions to Thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of women nationwide, right? And also, he is a guy who clearly doesn't particularly give a shit. There's widespread speculation that he has paid for abortions. He's kind of a sleazeball. We know that in his personal life, he has taken a libertine attitude towards sexual entitlement 
that is, you know, a kind of sexism that is actually deeply comfortable with abortion, right? There's multiple mm-hmm. kinds of sexism. And his yeah. is the kind of one of pervasive maximalist sexual entitlement that can and does use abortion sort of to further its own ends, right? That's not true of Joe Biden or nominal pro-choice candidate, who clearly has a great personal antipathy towards abortion that he is allowing to shoot himself in the foot with as abortion rights have become such a powerful issue for the left. So we have Joe Biden, who is the political pro-choice candidate but who is personally very sort of ambivalent about abortion and is allowing his distaste for it to dampen the political case he is making, which I think really relies on abortion rights as a galvanizing issue in this 2024 cycle. And then we have Donald Trump, who's just so profoundly cynical that he is willing to harness the very intense anti-abortion misogyny of a small minority of his party base uh, in order to try and propel himself uh, back into power. So there's just like a real misalignment uh, between what these guys believe in and what they're doing. And, you know, Donald Trump's cynicism and his shamelessness has sort of worked well for him in the past, or at least it hasn't hurt him. But I don't think Joe Biden can afford to make the same sort of like obvious glaring difference between his personal sentiments and his like supposed political priorities. Yeah, no, I, I mean, the this, uh, the point that you made, I think it's not as widely understood as it should be. But like Donald Trump, even though, you know, he is the man more responsible than anyone else for ending Roe, his victory in 2016 in particular came from the fact that he has that sort of ambiguity. Now, being the sort of libertine, uh, you know, but you'll have Mike Pence, you know, like it's a it creates a kind of ambiguity. And he had like a lot of support from people who are not particularly um, uh, anti-choice and then are like uh, more in the middle. I, it's it's um, uh, very striking that his uh, polling for like sort of secular, non-church going white working class voters was far stronger than other Republicans. And that's in part because unlike, you know, say Mitt Romney or George W. Bush, he didn't, he wasn't like, you know, came out of a particularly religious culture of either Mormonism or evangelical uh, Protestantism. He, he, you know, like he, he seemed like a guy who, who would be okay with an abortion, who, if, you know, if his, if he, you know, had a girlfriend who had a pregnancy, you know, w- w- would pay for it. Like that's totally plausible whether it happened or not. And that helped him because, you know, there are a lot of people who are in like, you know, otherwise culturally conservative even, but like are pro-choice. Where conversely, like actually, like, you know, like Biden's sort of ambiguous identity might have helped him in the past. And he's like, a you know, might have helped him in the sort of 70s when you had a lot of people who were like otherwise economically aligned with the Democratic Party, but, you know, had uh, religious uh, misgivings about abortion. Uh, but but I, mean, I, I don't see those people as being like a significant block anymore, no. uh, especially since, you know, after Roe, after the uh, Dobbs decision, uh, the entire electorate has totally polarized. So in a way, like, yeah, I, I mean, the sort of ambiguous personal identity of both candidates, like it doesn't work towards Biden's advantage in, in this case, because abortion is actually like really popular. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, here's the thing is the, the Republican Party under Trump represents a sort of really successful integration of religious and secular forms of misogyny. Mm-hmm. Right. And like, yeah. frankly, the guys like Trump, like wealthy, 
sort of sexual liberty enjoyers, or at least, you know, sexual, mm-hmm. like people with disinterest yeah. in gay and, and abortion rights issues, like those people Bar- should- conservative as, as some people right. call Yeah. Them. Like those people would be in a lot of cases, I think like decent sort of targets for a democratic messaging. Right. But what they have been enticed by Trump by is sort of a a message of domination, which has been integrated much more baldly into a pro-life message. Whereas pro-life messaging used to actually be like kind of deliberately self-awarely trying to minimize its misogynist undertones, right? They didn't want to seem like they hated women. That's really changed since Dobbs. They have gotten much less accustomed to paying lip surface to you know, things like child poverty. They've uh, gotten much more accustomed to proposing and indeed enacting like civil and criminal punishments that directly target abortion patients rather than simply abortion providers, right? The sort of, the mask has kind of come off and Trump's personal woman hating, which is, you know, like quite like vulgar and lurid has really provided this permission structure for the anti-choice movement and really like the the Republican Party as a whole to sort of go mask off with this. Yeah, no, no. It, it is sort of patriarchy without the mask of chivalry. Like, you know, like you're not even pretending <laughs> that there's some some sort of decent treatment for women as part of the package, which is really a remarkable thing to, to be selling. And think back, like it's worth thinking through like what, what it means to confront like that sort of politics. It makes it much more imperative to have like an actually strongly, you know, pro women's right message, like a message that is like, like you know, puts front and center, you know, not the issues of like uh, concerns about health, but actually like, you know, this is actually about the status of women in the society. And but that is not the way in which Joe Wire, Joe Biden is wired to think about this issue. So let, let, let's, I mean, let's flesh out. We've we, yeah. alluded a little bit to, you know, sort of personal doubts, possibly, you know, likely coming from his sort of Catholicism, but also, you know, coming from his uh, being part of that generational cohort of, you know, he's not just a boomer. He's actually older than the boomer. He's the, the silent generation type, which I think is like the most socially conservative cohort in like the 20th century in America. Like, like it's actually a remarkably... <laughs> A remarkable fact that 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 is who the president of the United States is in 2024. But do you want to like, so so how how does Joe Biden approach this issue? What's the baggage he's bringing to it? Yeah, you know, he is kind of a uniquely ill-suited figure for this like sort of historical realignment that's happening in the Dem- around the Democratic Party right now. You know, you mentioned Joe Biden's antipathy towards abortion being shaped by his Catholicism, and that comes up a lot. But I'm not entirely sure that that's exactly what it is, because, you know, a majority Mm -hmm. of American Catholics support abortion rights. They, you know, it's like how like a lot of Muslims drink and eat pork, right? Like they're told to do one thing and they do another. Like people's um, people routinely sort of disregard the instructions of religious authorities Mm -hmm. in the actual living Mm -hmm. of their lives and shaping of their worldview. So that's one thing. Yeah. Joe Biden's Catholicism is not like letting him listen to the Pope Francis when he says, like, to, to have a ceasefire in Gaza, right? <laughs> so, like, so, so it's, it's clearly there are limits to uh, uh, using Catholicism to explain why he is that way. And also, you know, we have a figure 
on this issue, who is sort of Joe Biden's mirror in terms of Catholicism, in terms of generational positioning, and that's Nancy Pelosi, right? Who and like yeah, this yeah. is like you do not have to hand it to Nancy Pelosi. Like, don't misinterpret me, but she is <laughs> substantially more comfortable talking yeah. about abortion yeah. as both a healthcare and as a sort of civil rights and equal citizenship issue. And she is also a ancient, like really like comically, you know, too old person of that silent generation who is white, wealthy and Catholic. So Mm. there's there's something about Joe Biden that is particular to Joe Biden that I don't think can be Mm. ascribed neatly to either his generation or to his Catholicism, although I don't doubt that those are, you know, sort of contributing factors. Honestly, I think it's that he's an old white man. Yeah, yeah. He is, and he comes from an era in which the popular conception about abortion was very, very different. Joe Biden has been in national government, he's been in the Senate Senate since the 1970s. And he was coming from an era when abortion had been very successfully politicized by the right in the years following Roe v. Wade. And so he came from an era when Democrats were calculating that it was to their political advantage to be only, you know, tepid, qualified, and sort of continually disavowing uh, their commitment to abortion rights, right? Um, So that was an era in which abortion was considered a constitutional right, in which large swaths of the population were being convinced to have moral objections to it and in which there was an insurgent movement that was seeking to change something whose moral appeals had to be sort of neutralized for voters who wanted to be able to support the democratic party. Right. And this is the circumstance under which we get the framework of safe, legal and rare, which was sort of a, popular approach to Democrats abortion messaging that was used really throughout like the 1990s to sort of emphasize the idea of abortion, that it was, you know, considered and pitched as something like a necessary evil, right? That is not a message that envisions abortion as an affirmative social good. It is not a message that elevates the abortion right to the same level of dignity and importance as other constitutional rights, like speech or religion uh, or voting. Uh, And it is not a message that foregrounds abortion's role in fostering the social equality between men and women that is essential to, you know, (laughs) a, a Democratic Republic of, of, of integrity, right? So this was abortion held at arm's length, like something smelly and dirty that you didn't want to get on you. And that's very much Joe Biden's approach. It was what was considered both electorally and morally viable in the time, you know, in 30 some odd years ago when he was really in his prime. And that has changed. Yeah, no, I, I, I think that's right. And I think it is a case of there was a language that was developed at the time. I really remember this in the 70s and 80s, like that they would always say personally opposed, you know, like someone like Mario Como or even Geraldine Ferraro, you know, would say, like, I'm personally opposed to abortion. And that sort of caveat defined how the party positioned itself. It, it is. I mean, I'm really glad you like 
emphasize that, that you know, like the sort of religion and the ge- generational cohort is not f- fully explanatory. Because if thinking a bit more about it, like with co- the comparison between Pelosi and Biden, like, you know, Pelosi and, you know, also like Diane Feinstein, like that cohort of female politicians who were really a pioneering cohort of the first ones, you know, there were women politicians before that, but never like on a generational way that you started seeing in the 70s and 80s who came into politics and came particularly at a time where like these issues of gender were polarizing the electorate. Like, you know, their experience of that issue is very different than like a male politician like Joe Biden, especially since like Joe Biden sees himself as always playing a mediator role. Like he is, his, his job is not really to represent democratic constituencies, but to mediate between them and other forces in society and to, you know, like bring their issues to the table, but also like bargain. That's very much how he approaches issues of like race and even of like labor. And all of which like, you know, like makes it imperative, I think, for these social groups to actually mobilize and push him, because unless he they do that, it's not ever his instinct to like act on their demands. It's like he acts on their demand when he sees that he has to mediate between them and you know the Republicans. So so yeah, I mean it is something. Joe Biden's kind of quibbling, fence sitting position on abortion is very much tied to his like you know his general approach to politics. This is this is who he is. Well, I'm glad you bring up you know, Joe Biden kind of broadly as somebody who sits on the fence and who is, you know, he's, he does seem to have an instinct that the correct position is sort of like equidistant between the two extremes, right? Which is, you know, this like mm-hmm. centrist brain <laughs> that has infected yeah. a lot of our punditry and also seems like pretty common among the, you know, aging Democratic leadership. But I also wanted to go, and and, I, and you also bring up a point about political leverage of social groups and the need for them to for for Biden to be pushed, uh, which I want to return to in a moment. But I want to make another point because Biden has never exactly been in the middle when it comes to women's rights. Right? You bring up no, no, no. I have Diane. Yeah. You bring up Diane Feinstein, right? Diane Feinstein was elected uh, to the Senate from California in 1992 the so-called year of the woman in which the number of women senators in the U S Senate went from two to six. They had to give them a bathroom (laughs) after because suddenly there were six of them and not just the two who everybody was sort of expecting to leave. And that year of the woman, that 1992 congressional election that brought many more women into the Senate and into Congress was propelled. And this has like been historically substantiated by the Anita Hill hearings over which mm-hmm. Joe Biden presided, in which yeah. he orchestrated the gendered humiliation of a sexual harassment accuser and then ushered in a anti-choice vote onto the Supreme Court, right? Clarence Thomas would not be yeah. on the Supreme Court if it were not for the sexist performance that Joe Biden put on when faced with Anita Hill in 1991, right? So it's not mm-hmm. only that Joe Biden is sort of like a moderate squish on this one issue it's that he is bad on this complex of issues surrounding the sort of like legal scaffolding that is required for women to be equal citizens and participants in public life things like sexual harassment law things like abortion rights law things like prosecution of sexual violence crimes like he's particularly bad on this and mm-hmm. 
the extent to which he is publicly ostentatiously bad on this has in fact been driving political movements of feminist reaction for 30 years. So what we're seeing yeah. now <laughs> as as we see you know this kind of very now decentralized but I think ascendant abortion and reproductive rights movement sort of being composed particularly of of younger activists, millennial and Gen Z activists who are being like quite openly critical of Joe Biden. You can understand that as a continuation of a much longer tradition of, you know, feminists telling this guy to go fuck himself because he's such a like ostentatious misogynist. You know what I mean? But like, no, no, no. So, yeah. Yeah, these are deep trends. These, these, this is like something that, like, I mean, this guy know, just, this uh, guy just won't go away, and he won't change. <laughs> uh, so, like, and it's, it's a, a great feminist tradition to have the same fight over and over again over the course of decades because of these yeah. sort of like intractable brick walls, like Joe Biden, right? So Joe Biden is actually like history has put him in kind of a pickle, right? Because the only way he's going to win re-election, and his like campaign staffers are you know, leaking this left and right. The only way he's going to win re-election is if women are mobilized around Dobbs, right? But Mm -hmm. he does not understand abortion rights as an affirmative asset. He continues to understand them as something distasteful and vulnerable making, right? I think he honestly thinks that if he goes out and says, actually, you know, what we need to do is go beyond Roe. What we actually need to do is address the ways that abortion access was not sufficient before Dobbs. We need to establish something much closer to the pre-Casey status quo in which there was a much more robust individual right to an abortion. Or we need to like imagine uh, even different other ways. We need to mm-hmm. use VA power more expansively. We need to use FDA power more expansively. If he was going to do all that, first of all, he wouldn't believe it, right? Because what he actually yeah. thinks is that abortion is a moral ill that kind of should be discouraged. But I think he also thinks he would lose votes. Like he does not understand that abortion is affirmatively popular because the politics of it have changed over the past 30 years. Uh, he thinks yeah, that no, it I, is. I, 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 yeah. No, I, I, I think that that is one area where like the age is kind of a factor that he's kind of imagining an, an electorate that is very different than what's uh, been happening. And I actually think, I mean, it's the past 30 years, but particularly since Dobbs, I, I mean, I was very interested in the polling of uh, people who, are say, who would say like, you know, abortion should be allowed in all circumstances. Like that's actually shot up, yeah, uh, uh, and that creates a very different dynamic. What uh, um, what you have, and it's partially because you know the Republicans continue. Like you know, it's not just that they had this great victory with Dobbs, but like the you know, like they are pushing for like even more extreme measures. And in that case, like it actually does seem like uh that is like negatively polarizing the the rest of the electorate where you know like people might have like you know like you know not wanting to think about the details of abortion and be like oh okay you know so it can sometimes be bad but like when actually so when people actually see all these stories in the news of like really horrific laws with these consequences like i think there's an ongoing radicalization that's happening around this issue yes no you're right you're right and like as the 
as a feminist, I am obligated to pause at this point in the conversation and say that a lot of the catastrophes and the like human rights abuses that we're seeing post Dobbs were actually also present pre Dobbs, right? So like yeah, Brittany no, Watts, yeah. a thirty something year old woman in, in Ohio who miscarried at twenty weeks and was subjected to felony charges, like a nurse called the cops on her. The cops tore apart her toilet at home looking for fetal remains. She was subjected in this moment of, you know, confusion, grief, and physical pain to uh, tremendous suspicion and only had her ordeal stop when a grand jury finally threw out the charges that the DA had asked for in a very rare move, right? That kind of criminalization of a miscarriage, a miscarriage leading Mm -hmm. to an arrest, a criminal investigation, a felony charge, and yes, indeed, an imprisonment. That is something that happened before Dobbs. These... Issues like you have Kate Cox, a woman, a mother of two in Texas, uh, who got a fatal diagnosis of her fetus uh, and had to eventually flee the state uh, in order to preserve her own health and fertility because Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton uh, personally stepped in to stop her from getting the abortion that would have allowed her to remain healthy instead of forcing her to give birth to a child that would ultimately not survive. That kind of incident in which a pregnant woman is forced to flee her state because of a gestational limit or because of a, you know, functional ban on abortion care, even in cases of severe fatal, fatal fetal abnormality, you know, that is something that was happening pre-Dobbs, right? These are things that were happening even when Roe was in place, which is why it's my obligation to say that Roe was never sufficient. However, mm-hmm. what was not happening was that regular people weren't hearing about it, really. These are things that you heard about if you were a feminist journalist, <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. with your ear to the ground uh, in these whisper networks and in these mutual aid networks and in mm-hmm. feminist media, right? It was not on national news. Yeah, uh, no, absolutely. That's, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I, 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 yeah, even like a few years ago, like where I would see those things would be, uh, you know, through Amanda Marcotte or writers like that, you know, who like were following this stuff, but they, they did not have like national residence. So in that sense, I mean, you know, I mean, the thing with the, the Dobbs decision was like, it's like a classic overstep in the sense that like under Casey and under like, you know, subsequent to Casey, they could have kept on chipping away at stuff and like, you know, making like miserable and, and, and not gotten the uh, attention and not gotten the, the, the backlash. And, you know, but, but that wasn't enough. Like they, 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 they wanted to end Roe and, you know, here we are. So, yeah, uh, but, 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 and it does, I, I mean, yeah, yeah. So in terms of like Biden, like, you know, like it, it does seem to me like what you've laid out is a pretty good case for actual like sort of like a, a protest movement against like Biden, you know, coming from the pro-choice side of, you know, like, like people, you know, bringing this up and trying to prod him towards a much more like, you know, substantive policy move. And I, I know there's like all sorts of like sort of, political ferment, especially since, you know, the Dobbs uh, decision of like, you know, the sort of a professional pro-choice movement, like, you know, like a lot of rethinking about what 
what strategies that they followed and should be following. Uh, but do you think there's any ch- any chance of this, like that, uh, like a real push to make this issue front and center? Well, you know, I think the Biden campaign is making two calculations. One that abortion will be motivating, and two that they do not need the abortion rights movement to come alongside them, right? Like you, Jeet, just mentioned that abortion didn't become sort of politicized in the same centrally animating, foregrounded way until Dobbs, mm-hmm. even though the abortion rights movement was running around with a chick- like a chicken with its head cut off yeah. in the years before Dobbs saying, A, they're going to overturn Roe v. Wade, and B, it's functionally overturned for a lot of people already, right? Mm-hmm. The axe had that that sort of Damocles had to fall before the American electorate woke up, right? And I think that the lesson that Joe Biden and some of the people close to him took from that reality is that they don't need the activists, that America is not really listening to the activists, that they, Mm -hmm. the Biden campaign, the Democratic Party, that they can be the primary messengers Mm -hmm. around abortion rights. And I think that that's not totally true, because I think that something that Elsa changed post-Obs was that the abortion rights movement, which, as you said, is like sort of internally divided in a lot of ways, sort of institutionally moribund. There's a lot of like internal critiques at organizations like Planned Parenthood, which has been like really decimated in the post-Casey era. But I think that they have regained popular attention and popular legitimacy. And, you know, there's, this is, you know, kind of a, a problem with social movements that is not unique to feminism or reproductive rights, right? Like these social movements have been their institutions have been really hollowed out, right? We see this very easily with unions. We see it with large-scale feminist institutions. We see it with, you know, the Black Civil Rights Movement is institutionally much weaker than it once was. And that's kind of true across the board. But what has replaced it is this internet discourse in which people are being politicized and they are forming communities around those politics, and those communities, which don't have a lot of money, they don't have a lot of organizational heft, but they do have like identity forming loyalty within them, right? And those mm-hmm. communities don't trust Joe Biden and they are turning against him. And, you know, you've got a situation now where this is going to be a turnout election, right? You've got these people yeah. who are making a choice between voting for Joe Biden or not voting, right? A lot of them are young. They already esteem him too old. They're not going to vote for Trump, but they don't really trust Joe Biden on this issue. And I think, you know, his attitude, you know, he won't say abortion. He only says Roe v. Wade. He has largely shunted the matter off to his vice president, which, you know, use the secondary principle. It sort of seems like the campaign is just aiming it as a secondary issue, He's not responding to the activist base with much besides contempt. And, you know, a lot of the people who are motivated by reproductive rights are also, like, disturbed on a profound moral level by Joe Biden's ongoing support of Israeli operations in Gaza, right? So they're saying this is a guy who can't really lift a finger to defend our civil rights. He's refusing to take our desires seriously, 
and he is providing, you know, the enabling monetary support to something that we consider a genocide. That's a hard, that's a hard turnout <laughs> strategy to overcome. No, and, no, you know, I, I <laughs> the, the, the campaign's just not taking their base seriously. And yeah, that's, no, that's I, something I, that's got to change if they're going to win. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I think that's right. And I, I think, I mean, speaking to another issue, like I've occasionally seen like people, reporters interview sort of like voters who are in the middle and there'll be like some sort of quote where they indicate that they're not sure, you know, where the parties stand on abortion. And, and these occasionally, these little snippets get blown up on social media. And I've often seen like very Democratic Party partisans say like, what's wrong with voters? How do you deal with voters who are like this, who don't realize like, you know, the divide of the parties on abortion? Like, you know, like it's like, you know, like, and I have to say like, you know, like, okay, if it's Hillary Clinton, if it had been Hillary Clinton versus George W. Bush, like, I think that, you know, like voters would have had some sense of clarity. But, you know, like Trump was able to make things ambiguous in 2016. Joe Biden himself makes things ambiguous. Yeah. Like he's creating an ambiguity where there shouldn't be one. And, I, you know, like, I don't know if you can blame like low, so-called low information voters if Joe Biden does, in fact, have a history of 50 years of being squishy on this issue, of often actually being hostile to reproductive freedom. And, and other feminist causes and to just suddenly say, well, you know, like, what's wrong with these voters? I, I actually think that this is like a pretty good warning sign, like, you're, you know, you're, that some voters have real doubts about your candidate and you have to, like, you know, create clarity and not ambiguity. And so, yeah, it, it is very curious that uh, they don't seem to be aware that this is a problem. Yeah, you know, the Democrats have been handed an enormous gift with women's anger in this election cycle, right? Mm -hmm. Women are motivated about Dobbs. They are showing up in, you know, off-season, weirdly scheduled, like, state elections to vote on this issue, right? It is driving turnout. It is driving passion. It is something that has been handed to them on a silver platter, and they're wasting it. Yeah, I think I think that's right, and I think I'm hoping uh, that at the very least some of them will start to listen to critics, and particularly listen to you. This is perhaps a good note to end it on, which is I really think you know, like you know, if we're going to avoid you know the catastrophe of a second Trump presidency, we need to be listening to Moira Donegan more <laughs> and voices like her more. And I want to thank her once again for being on the program. Thank you so much. I I agree that everything would be better if I was just in charge. <laughs>